In a city known for its cool and unusual places, even the Wild Bird Fund might surprise. It's basically a hospital for sick and injured birds on Manhattan's Upper West Side. From pigeons to owls to ducks, the Wild Bird Fund treats all kinds of feathered patients. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's Cityscape, we're heading inside New York City's hospital for wild birds. Glad you're with us. Hi, I'm Rita McMahon. I'm the director of the Wild Bird Fund. Rita, there are chickens and there are ducks on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yes, quite a few, particularly right here. And then there are a lot that are actually born on penthouse roofs. Not the chickens, but the ducks. And those are wild mallard ducks that come in, a hen will come in, see a beautiful roof, even with a water feature, and it's well manicured, and and she'll lay her eggs there. And she won't be discovered. Very often she's not discovered. And then the eggs hatch, and she flies off, and it finally occurs to her that her babies won't be able to fly. Their only option is jumping. And that's when the people notice the little ducklings frantically running around their roof, and they call us. And we can have as many as 40 penthouse ducklings coming through our doors because we have a very good person, a duck wrangler, Michelle, who goes out and she captures the hen, and then she captures the ducklings, brings them back, and they stay here for about two weeks, and then we'll be able to release them in the park. So what's the history of the Wild Bird Fund? How did it come to be? The Wild Bird Fund's history is is a story of what wasn't. New York was the only major city that did not have a wildlife rehabilitation center top 15 cities, New York was the only one that did not have it. And it's a little long history. It wasn't immediate. It's things just happened. Uh, I found a Canada goose on the side of 684, brought it back to the city, and for three days I tried to get it help, and there was no place to take it. I ultimately took it to the Animal Medical Center, put down my credit card, and said it was my pet. Please take care of it. And they kept it overnight, and they gave it back to me the next day and said it was fine. And it wasn't. So it was not only there wasn't really any place to take wildlife, the normal vet doesn't know what to do with wildlife. So it's something they they have to train to some extent to understand that. And a lot are doing that now, which is a very good thing. So how long has the Wildlife Bird Fund been around now? We incorporated in 2005, but I started a long time before that. And even as a kid, I lived across the street from a veterinarian, and I took in the wildlife. He, he did the medical treatments, and I kept them in my home. So you were rehabilitating animals in your own home? As a kid, yes. And then before this place opened, there were 60 animals in my apartment before we opened the center at 565 Columbus. What kinds of animals? All birds or other animals, they too? Were pretty much, they were pretty much all birds. Um, the squirrels stayed at a vet's office because that's special caging to make sure they don't get out. Uh, and we had lots of rehabbers who worked with squirrels. So, so take me on a tour. What's yeah. going on here? So you came through that front door, and thousands of other people do as well. But most of them have a bird in hand or a bird in a box or a bird in a bag. And they come from the five boroughs. They come from Connecticut, Long Island, New York State, New Jersey. And they we're the only place around for about an hour's drive. So we get it from more far-flung places than you might expect. And they come in, and they'll fill out a form. They'll be greeted by reception. And then the animal goes into the exam room, which is just over there, and a wildlife rehabber will see the animal. 
If it's not crazy, the person who rescued the animal is invited in so that they can be there for the exam. And they're often asked to help, like hold it while its leg is splinted. And then they learn a lot about the animal and they actually get quite attached to it. What are among the most common ailments that you see come through the door? Right now, this is migration season, so most of the birds coming through the beautiful warblers have struck the windows. And it's window strikes, window collisions. They've been flying through these parts for thousands and thousands of years. It's the Atlantic Flyway. The Atlantic Flyway passes directly through New York City. And so then we raise these skyscrapers, and they're not changing their way because they, they migrate by the stars at night. And that's the stars are in the same place. They're not going to change. They learn somewhat. that So in the autumn, we have a lot of young birds that strike the windows, many more than we get in the spring, because the spring migration, they're going north, and those were adults that are returning to the mating grounds and where they'll get good food. But in the autumn, we have first-year birds, and they're much greater numbers. What about birds that live right here in New York City? What are the biggest threats that they face? Uh, curiously, one of the greatest threats is lead poisoning. 15 to 20 percent of our cases of the resident birds have lead poisoning, and that's anything from the teeny sparrow all the way to a mute swan, that they will have serious lead poisoning that debilitates them, it poisons them, and it debilitates debilitates them neurologically, they can't fly, they actually stop eating, and we treat them though, which is wonderful, that you can treat lead poisoning. We're, someone comes in with a bird that's all twisted around, it's called torticollis, where they turn their head, and we test them for lead, and it's like, yahoo, he is lead, because we can treat that. We can't treat a brain hemorrhage, and we can't treat a virus. So we are treating, we treat, right now we have probably 35 birds being treated for lead poisoning. How many birds typically come through your door on any given day? Uh, on these given days, up to 60. Wow, that's yes, a lot. It's tremendous. It's grown so rapidly. 30% more each year has been the general increase. But this year may be breaking all the records. 80% of the people who come in are first-time people. I'm going to answer the door. Go They're ahead. Here they are. With birds in hand, With I see. A chicken, it looks like. And ducks in the way. Now, I overheard her say that she found a rooster on the third floor of her lobby. Yes. Is that common? Yes, people will s decide suddenly that they can't keep it. In New York City, you can't keep a rooster. So if it starts crowing, people toss it out. Not well, I can't say it's not usual. It happens often that it's just in the building or in the basement. This beautiful, beautiful, fancy rooster was in a basement, and someone just left it there. How does someone even know to come to you in a city like New York? Well, we were careful in how we chose the name, Wild Bird Fund. So generally people will search for wild bird. So I wanted to catch the search on that. Fund might not have been the right third word because we don't have money. <laughs> You're a nonprofit? Yes, very much so, and we're always hand to mouth. But it worked better that way. Uh, 
some people think that means we have money. No, we don't. But uh, wild bird is the important thing. That gets them to us. So is the goal always to rehab and release, essentially? It's always to rehab and release, though there are pet birds that come our way. And like the chickens and the roosters, they're going to be released by going to a farm or an estate. Uh, Ring-necked doves over there, which we have a great number of, they're, they're actually pet birds, but there's no agency to take them, the chickens or the ducks or the domestic geese or a domestic turkey. So we take it in, and it's not part of the mission as wild birds, but it also benefits us because they can be out and greeting people. We can't have our patients out here showing you know, how cute they are or wonderful or interesting or bizarre. So it works. Pigeons, of course, are synonymous with New York City. There are a lot of them here on the streets. Do you see a lot of pigeons? Oh, we did 6,000 birds and animals last year. Just over half were pigeons. We are very fond of pigeons. We think they're one of the most, they are, they're credited with being one of the most, very most intelligent birds there are. Uh, their visual acuity is astounding. And if you check New York Times pigeons, you will have all different articles about how they can do higher math, they can read mammograms, they can learn the alphabet, and they can recognize true English words and non-English words. Unfortunately, as you know, a lot of people say that pigeons are rats with wings. What do you say to those people? I don't think they know pigeons very well, truthfully. Uh, they've lived with us for 5,000 years. They know us intimately. And they'll assess a person as to whether it's friend or foe. And they can tell the difference rather quickly. They size us up wonderfully. And oftentimes people come in with a pigeon. They go, I don't know. I never rescued a bird. I certainly never thought of rescuing a pigeon. But that bird looked at me, and I looked at him, and I had to help it. They connect to us more than most birds. What kinds of issues are pigeons facing here in New York City that they wind up here? Well, the lead poisoning is very large, but then it's how they get involved in our trash. They get string tied around their, their feet or their neck or something like that, or they imbibe the poison of the lead or some other toxin that's in the water. Um, they get dispossessed from their nests when people are putting the AC in, and then we'll have two cute squeakers being brought in because the new AC had to go in. Um, and they get, you know, they get hit by cars. They don't generally smash into windows like the migratory birds, but they do have plenty of accidents from cars and trucks and bicycles. That said, is the lifespan of a pigeon in New York City much lower than elsewhere, would you say? A pigeon in captivity can live 15, 20 years very easily. A pigeon in the wild on the street, is average life is three years. Wow, that's significantly different. The, uh, I had one bird who used to come back regularly whenever he had a medical problem. He lived to 10 years, but he knew, <laughs> he knew where to come when he had a problem, and he'd tap on the window because he had been raised there. And so he was treated for uh, burns on his feet, electrical burns on his feet. He was treated for thrush, and he had to come in once a month to have his beak trimmed because it was overgrown. But he knew when it was trouble picking up seeds, he'd come and he'd knock on the window. He'd come in, I'd file his beak, and he ate all the seeds he could possibly want. And when he was done, he left. But he came once a month. As he had trouble with his beak, he'd come to have it filed. 
I was going to ask the question, do you find that the birds are actually appreciative? They know that you're here to help them. Surprising how many do figure out that they're not hurting us, they're actually helping us, and I feel better. And that's from the swans. We had five swans. They didn't fight with each other. They didn't fight us. They were all sick when they came, and they were perfect, well-behaved. And they, we've discovered that four swans can fit in our pool at the same time, but not five. You know, but they got along very well. We also had one very dramatic case was a red-tailed hawk who had stepped in tar. Because she stepped in tar, she could not open up her talons. That would mean sure death for her. One, she couldn't catch prey, she couldn't walk, and she wouldn't even be able to hold it to tear it apart. So she was in bad shape, and she fell in or went into a window well, and the woman called, and ACC went and brought the, the hawk. And it was fresh tar. It hadn't happened long. But in, with her feet balled up, there was no future for her eating. And we had her wrapped up in a towel. We laid her on her side. And two of us used very long Q-tips to try to clean the tar off. You actually use mayonnaise to, use, to remove tar, which is interesting. But, and we're there with the long Q-tips so she can't talon us. But in that time, as we're getting more tar off and she can move her feet more, we see that she's slowly opening up her feet to be as flat as possible so that we could really get in there and clean her. So then we just used our, and went and went and went with a plain gauze and we were working fast, much faster, much better. And we're doing it, we're doing it, and we thought that was enough time. So we put her back into the cage. As soon as she was in the cage, she was fierce again. The next day we take her out to finish the procedure and she's wrapped in the towel. She's laying on her side, and we're about to reach for her legs. When she puts out her two legs out from under the towel, spreads her, her fingers, her digits, wide, finish the job. And we finished the job and released her, and she was off. Wow, unbelievable. But she knew we were getting the tar off, and she wanted the tar off. So a rooster just came in. We see chickens in here. Now, you can't rehab a rooster or a chicken and just send them on their way here yeah. on Columbus Avenue. So where do they go? Well, we have one place in particular, Zeze Flowers, has an estate way up in New York State, and they are very kindly accommodate these birds. And they have 100 acres and a barn, a couple of barns, just for those birds. He loves birds. He's, I think, the number one florist in New York City, and this is a great charitable thing he does. All right, Rudy, can you show me around a little yes. bit more? So you see this is the exam room where the rehabber is in blue, and they'll meet with different people who bring in, bring in birds. And it's also a flight room where we can test out the little warblers to make sure they're okay. But then a bird might be neurologic, and it may not have lead poisoning, or it may, and we'll put it in the isolation ward. And that's very different. In the isolation ward, the person, wear, the person wears a yellow gown, changes their gloves between birds, and all the cages are closed so that what one bird has doesn't go to the one next to it. Next to it. But the most important thing about the isolation room is these birds are separate from the general population. So we can treat some very nasty diseases. Yeah, like what are the most common diseases that you see in birds? Pigeon pox or bird pox, avian pox, is very contagious. And some rehab centers won't take any birds that have it because it is so hard to handle. But because we have strict protocols for the isolation room, we can bring a bird out of it. And in five weeks, they're fine, which is great. So all different viruses affect them and... Uh, head impact can affect them, and the lead poisoning, and that's mostly it. And what's on the other side here? The other side, coming around. 
right off the front row, uh, front room is the waterfowl room. And you can see the cages being prepared. But the most significant thing you have in a the pool here is an eight foot long pool, three feet wide, three feet deep, which can hold up to four swans at a time. And right now there's a mallard who's preening after having had his swim. And we had a female who would, she was very funny, she'd just go from the cage right into the pool. She'd fly out of the cage into the pool on her own. And she was only here two days. But she goes, yeah, that's where I want to be. And then all those little ducklings she saw, they'll be swimming and seagulls will be swimming and all the waterfowl. For waterfowl to be able to swim multiple times in the day, it's actually terribly important to their existence, their survival. They have to be waterproof. And you only maintain being waterproof by swimming and preening. They have to take care of themselves. And that's what that duck is doing right over there. Nonstop, right? You see, just on and on and on. I've got to get this up. got to get this all, all my feathers in order. Yes. What would you say is the most unusual case that has come through your doors? That's so hard. I have to admit, it's very, very hard. Um, there's one fun case I have. It was Nick, a homing pigeon, who came in. And he was really okay. We treated him for lead uh, a little bit. Not, nothing really wrong with him. He just, he just, I think, was exhausted. So he was here from, a race, from racing. And he was here a week, just a week. And he was a handsome bird. And he's actually in the book, um, Andrew Garn's book, The Pigeons of New York, Behind the Feathers. And he was here a week. He went off to someone who has a coop in Brooklyn. And the man let him go too soon. And he arrived here at the door. He wanted to come back here. He liked the hospital better than any other place, uh, which is very interesting because he never saw it. He was brought from Queens in a box, but he had it all in his head where we were, and he came back. That's so I, absolutely I love that. incredible. Nick was wonderful, and, and he was a really beautiful bird. Uh, other cases, you, you get some that break your heart, that the, a, a baby swan has swallowed a fishing line, and it goes in. Uh, or it's wrapped around its tongue and, and you work with it. The swans that come in and they'll be they're suffering from uh, botulism and they, they're on an IV drip and the animal realizes it's getting better and it's feeling better and it's a huge male who would normally just really attack you and he's grateful and he gets so used to being here that he actually requests for please pick me up so I can poop in the garbage to keep his bed clean and he will request that because he, people will do it for him, and then he'll go, hey, hey, you, time, and he poops in the garbage. So, I mean, they get a partnership with you that's very nice. But we, in all cases, we try to keep them wild. We don't cuddle them, we don't hold them, except if we have to hold them for a foot bath or things like that. And they appreciate that hands-off. You know, it's like you're not entering. There's a personal space that we try to give to them. Like, we try not to enter their cage. If they want to leave their cage, it's great. Otherwise, we have to grab them. Um, that kind of respect for the animal, they recognize. How much do you rely on the support of volunteers to do what you do? Today, was 20 volunteers came in, and they're still coming. 20. So our staff is all of seven. So, and they, they work mid-shift. I mean, they do half days. Seven staff and 20 volunteers. So that's a big reliance. It's and like what kinds of opportunities do you have for them? What do they oh, do? Well, right now we have our summer interns here, so they put in longer hours, and some of them are getting credit 
Some of them will be applying to veterinary schools and they need this to get in and then we write the recommendation for them to get in. We also have a vet tech training program that will be starting. Uh, we do it every year and five or six come and it's coursework and they get a grade at the end. So we have a lot of uh, ex-staff and volunteers who are in or have vet graduated from veterinary school. Do you train people to be rehabbers? Yes, we do. It's a long haul though. It takes probably a year of experience before you can really handle something on your own. But we have, we have classes. We have vets that come in and teach classes. Anything from uh, antibiotic use to wound care, what ha you know, how you make a wound go away, um, splinting, lab tests, migration, nutrition, they're all standard classes that we offer, and we, we want more people, to, we want more help, so we want to train people as much as possible. Why is this so important to you, Rita? I think it's a moral duty to take care of our fellow residents on this planet, but in a selfish way, if we don't mind what's happening with them, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We do the lead testing so we know what's happening in New York City, and we have a lot of toxins in New York City. Uh, a professor at Columbia did a study with 825 of our cases, and she correlated it with the New York City Health Department's lead poisoning cases of children. Direct correlation by neighborhood, by season, by everything. So the pigeons, in fact, are a signalman creature, is what we say, and, and they indicate where the toxins are in the environment. They don't migrate. They live here. They stay in the same half-mile radius, generally. And so if they have the lead, the kids are exposed to the lead. And we want to avoid children having brain damage. How unnecessary it, it, would, it is. I mean, you can treat it, get rid of it, and let that child have a much better life. We also uh, work with Mount Sinai. We test birds that come through here for avian influenza. We're part of an international study to point out when avian influenza comes. It will come in one form or another. And we will, with Mount Sinai, we'll be able to say when it has. Can we go back outside and take yeah. a look at your window? Because your window is definitely something that will make one stop in their tracks walking down Columbus here, because you don't expect to see these birds in the window. These are all fancy pigeons. Well, almost all fancy pigeons. Some have courted uh, a feral pigeon, but most of them are fancy pigeons. Up on the right is Pandora. She's all white with frilly feathers on her feet, on her chest, and the back of her head. And she's a seraphim, like the angels, seraphim and cherubim. And this is Apollo. He's really the most uh, spectacular of them. People try to buy him all the time. Pig people who know pigeons come in, hey, is that bird for sale? I want that bird. He is a damascene, and he's silvery, and he has a teeny tiny beak, and he can fly at night better than most birds can. His partner, Carta, is right next to her, him. They're side by side. And Carta is a New York flight with a beautiful upswing of her feathers on the back of her head, and she has white eyes. But the New York flight was developed here in New York. And then we have varied other ones, some homers with great big heads, and they're much bigger. But they've all paired off their... That's... Uh, he's saying to Pandora, please come down. I think we can have a nest right here. You can hear them all the time. When you hear the male, mm, mm, he is saying, here, come here, baby. This is where we're going to have our nest. So they're very happy in the window. So are these permanent residents? Most of them are. 
Uh, we do give them, some will go for homes. The newer residents will go for homes, but Pandora, Carta, and Apollo will be here. They've been here six years. Was your vision to create a window that would make people stop in their tracks? Yes, yes. We could be in a much less expensive real estate place, but beyond fixing the animals, our, our goal is to change attitude. Be aware of the wildlife. See what you can do to help it or just do your best not to hurt it. Don't litter. Don't pollute. And think about sharing this space and how we're very rich for all the wildlife that comes through. We need to appreciate, go out and see it. Enjoy the park. Enjoy the wildlife. Rita, I love the fact that you have a rooster sitting in your office over here. I mean, that is a sight to be seen. A new receptionist. Yes. Is there anything else, Rita, you want to add that I'm we didn't talk about? I'm going to take you downstairs. You okay, let's go. Let's go. See. You have to watch where you walk around here, otherwise you'll step on a duck. But you see, how, yeah, you step on a duck or something else. <laughs> this is our little lab, and we have three lovely technicians who come in every week and do fecal floats and gram stains so that we get up to 50 to 100 tests done a week, which is a lot of work. But it's a great diagnostic tool, and we can really help the animals that way. Downstairs is where most of the action takes place. Really, most of the action takes place downstairs because yeah. a heck of a lot of action was taking place upstairs. <laughs> so you come in here, it's like, I don't know, and Get Smart, you opened up the back door of the laundry, and then it's like, whoa, what's happening here? The people in green are volunteers and interns. Those in blue are staff. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten and probably a few more people down here, 11, uh, who are working. And they work so hard because there are 60-odd cages to clean. Plus, we're over capacity. There are carriers to clean. And then you're going to see some interesting fellows. Hi. So these are baby pigeons. Baby pigeons, you very almost next to never, I can say, I've never seen one before. Baby pigeons are hard to come by in New York. Yes, they are, because they stay in the nest until they're just about full grown. This little guy had a pretty bad accident where he lost the skin on the top of his head. But I'm doing really well now. It's growing back very well. But he's a squeaker, so you hear him squeak. And that's what the, so they're called squeakers. And then we got, oh, he wants his puppy child. They are feeding... These guys, they're puppy chaps. So will this pigeon then go back out on They'll the streets of New York? Street. They will. Yes. I mean, that's our whole goal. Let me show you a teeny guy who fits just in the palm of your hand. Oh, my goodness. But I did get fed. He's got a great big crop. He says, I got lots of puppy chow. Yay. I think he's the one I took in the other day. Yay. You're a good guy. No, he isn't. <laughs> but you look like the other guy. I have to see where he is. They, the whole goal is for them to go free. Sometimes we have birds that can't go free, and sometimes they're adopted, which would be for the, here's a baby just recently out of the egg. Oh, wow. It's all yellow down. So tiny. Beak, very big beak and just yellow fuzz. Very young. Not easy. And this noisy guy... 
is a grackle. A brackle? A grackle. A grackle. A baby grackle. See how bright red his mouth is? And he's very talkative. Yes, yes, we got two grackles. And baby starlings. Oh, wow. Baby sparrows. How adorable. Yeah, well, we ate just recently. Otherwise, they'd all be really calling at you. They just got fed. Grackle is nonstop hungry, I think. Let me show you one more room that I think you'll like. I have to say, though, Rita, this is a little Alfred Hitchcock for me. <laughs> Close the door just behind you, or else you'll have some escapees. It's very much Alfred Hitchcock. So this is the flyway. And in this room are all the different birds. They're, they're eating on their own now, but they got to get real strength to fly. And so we've got lots of starlings. They've actually been fed recently, or else they'd be screaming at you. All over. Starlings all over. But we also have oven birds. And... Who else is in here? Oh, yes, a cedar waxwing and some warblers, a couple of war, two warblers there. Yeah. And then in here, we probably have morning doves. Yes, different morning doves. They're a little hysterical, so they're there so they don't hurt themselves until they get used to the place. So these birds in this room are preparing, preparing to, go, to go back for yeah. outside, yeah. yeah. And they have to be able to fly all the time because they're going to be flying. Up there's a red-winged blackbird. True or false, it's good luck to get pooped on. I think it's very good luck to get pooped on. <laughs> so far, you seem unscathed. Thanks so much, Rita. <laughs> Thank you. Rita McMahon is the director of the Wild Bird Fund. More info at wildbirdfund.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening.